You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Nathan kicked off our series last week talking about the form of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the prehistory as it's known. A story where God calls all of humankind and all of creation good and made in the image of God. But by the point we ended last week, things had taken a little bit of a turn and we heard the story of the Tower of Babel, where power-hungry leaders begin to take charge and the strong begin to dominate the weak. So where does Genesis go after this? Well, this week I have what I kept referring to through anyone who I was talking to throughout the week as the most boring part of Genesis which I should probably stop saying because as it turns out, there's actually some pretty important stuff that happens here. And this next section of Genesis actually sets the scene for the whole of the rest of the journey of the people of God. And so enters into the stage Abraham, or Abram as he's known in this section of the narrative. He's a character that's central to the plot of the section of Genesis today, and he remains so for a good chunk more of the book. But I want to throw something into the mix at this point before we get any further about talking about Abraham. Patriarchy. The dominant power that men hold throughout this narrative. Abraham is known and heralded as the great patriarch of Christianity and also of Islam and Judaism. The Bible is a patriarchal book. It's written by men at a time when men dominated, about a time when men dominated, and often it's been interpreted throughout history by men. Women are against the odds found in the narrative and they play important parts. Their stories are there when we look for them, but we do often have to look hard. We've done two series recently looking at some of these stories of women in the biblical text, one called Hooray for the Matriarchy and one called Nevertheless She Persisted, and you can find them on the back catalogue of uh, the Global Gatherings on YouTube and on the Oasis Waterloo podcast. So throughout the narrative in Genesis, we're in a situation where authority rests with the patriarchs, with the men, but where the women exercise considerable personal influence over the course of events. But still in the patriarchal narratives, women are subsidiary characters. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah may get decent parts, but many other women are treated with casual violence and disregard, often there for the service of the man's main agenda. And Abraham is a deeply flawed character. One example is that he twice treats his wife badly, disregarding her well-being to ensure his personal safety. And I don't think we can argue our way out of the marginalisation of women that exists in these texts. It exists, and we do need to acknowledge it. And I think we can do this in a number of ways, but two, I would suggest, is number one, that we pay attention to the stories of the women who are there, and I hope we'll do that over the coming weeks. And two, that we've got to read the stories that we find critically, 
knowing that the dominant male power is at play throughout them. But back to what happens in Genesis next. After the story of the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Sarah, and their nephew Lot appear on the scene. We get a genealogy, a family history to introduce them, and we know they end up living in a place called Haran. But other than that, Abraham doesn't get much of an introduction. In fact, one of the first things that happens to him in the text is that God speaks to him, tells him to leave his home, leave his land, and go to the generic, land I will show you. God makes a grand promise that he'll make Abraham into a great nation, will bless him and make his name great. But other than that, he gives very little information. This is an especially outlandish promise, as Abraham's wife Sarah, or Sarai as she's known in this part of the text, is unable to have children. If I were Abraham, if I were Abraham and I was speaking to you, I probably wouldn't have crackly cables. Right, hopefully I'm far enough away now that I won't wander into them. If I were Abraham, I'm not sure I would have had the faith to follow this call, to leave everything I knew behind and to trust in a promise that seemed like it physically couldn't come true. But Abraham obviously had more faith than me. And so off Abraham, Sarah, Lot and their families go. And it turns out God leads them straight into a famine in Canaan. Lovely. They then travel to Egypt to try and escape the famine. And it's here that they end up in a situation where Abraham asks Sarah to pretend to be his sister instead of his wife so that he can escape being killed by the Egyptian people. Eventually, the Pharaoh discovers this and sends them packing. After this, Abraham, Sarah, Lot and their families are doing all right for themselves. But then Abraham and Lot's staff start fighting over their land and so they part ways. There's a lengthy war between a series of kings which results in Lot being taken hostage and being rescued by Abraham, who defeats some of the kings while he's at it. After this, a king asks Abraham to give his people over to the king and Abraham refuses because of his commitment to God. So for a boring few chapters, it turns out quite a lot is actually going on for Abraham and his family. After this, God appears to Abraham in a vision. Quite a lot of time has passed since the initial call that God made to Abraham to follow him and the promise that Abraham would be blessed and a great nation would come before him. By this point, Abraham seems to be getting a bit fed up. The promise has been delayed to the point of doubt, and the evidence around Abraham is to the contrary of the promise. Sarah still hasn't borne Abraham a child. How can a great nation come from him if he doesn't have any children? Abraham then gets into a bit of an argument with God. You haven't given me children. A servant is going to have to become my heir. And God assures Abraham again that he will have children and he will secure the land that God has promised, although not in his lifetime. Abraham is frustrated. He still wants further assurance from God. Theologian Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. 
Clearly, the faith in which Abraham is called is not a peaceful, pious acceptance. It is hard-fought and deeply argued conviction. Abraham will not be a passive recipient of the promise. He is prepared to hold his own. And in response to Abraham's bargaining and arguing with God, God makes a formal covenant with him. Covenants were part of everyday life in the ancient Near East and were binding agreements. Abraham and God have this alien-seeming ceremony to us where animals are sacrificed and fire sweeps over them. It's strange to us, but it would have been a known symbol to Abraham. A symbol that he could hold on to, to be assured of God's commitment to him and the importance of the relationship between God and Abraham. So after this assurance, Abraham decides to keep on living out his faith. And as we'll probably hear in future weeks, some of this does work out for Abraham personally in the end. But as the passage we read from Hebrews notes, not everything promised was fulfilled. The writer of Hebrews says of Abraham and the other Old Testament characters, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Abraham, in his deeply flawed way, was willing to live a life of faith in the knowledge of God's promises, even though he knew they weren't to be fulfilled in his own lifetime. Even though he knows himself and his family and those around him would experience suffering in the process. He knew the promise that God had made would have implications for the whole of history and that it was one worth living out. And I think the stories in Genesis as a whole point us to what lives of faith can look like, even in the face of huge adversity. They don't sell us a faith that's pretty and neat and linear. They don't sell us a faith where God waves a magic wand and makes our wishes come true. They don't sell us a faith where there's no room to doubt and to wrestle, or even to bargain with God. They don't sell us a faith in which quick and easy promises are made. And while Abraham does make promises directly to Abraham, they're really about his legacy, about the future shaping of God's people, more than they are about his individual life specifically. These stories tell us the realisation of God's promises can be painfully slow. But they tell us that a life of faith is worth living. And however painfully slow, hope is a promise that prevails against the odds. I want to tell you a little bit about this woman, Sojourner Truth. Some of you might know about her already. She was originally known as Isabella Bamfrey and was born in New York State in the late 1700s. When she was nine years old, she was sold along with a flock of sheep to a slave trader who beat and abused her. At the very end of the 1700s, New York had begun to legislate the abolition of slavery, but the process of emancipating those enslaved took almost 30 years. So Sojourner, after enduring this cruel treatment, ended up walking away from her slave owner 
and she found a family who offered to buy her services until the emancipation order came into effect. She escaped with one of her daughters but had to leave her other children behind. After this, she later found out her son had been illegally sold from one slave trader to another, and she took the owner to court. She became one of the first black women to take a white man to court and win. Sojourner spent the rest of her life fighting for women's and civil rights. She was, amongst many other things, a suffragist, often challenging white suffragists for failing to fight for racial equality alongside gender equality. And she continued to fight for these things for her whole life until she died in 1883, in her 90s. And although she saw many things change in her life, women's suffrage in the US didn't come into effect until 1920, and black women were essentially unable to vote until 1965. In 2009, she became the first black woman to have a statue in the Capitol building. The promise of hope can be painfully slow, but it prevails against the odds. On a note slightly closer to home, our team at The Hub have felt a bit of how hard it can be to hold on to hope this week in the face of everything to the contrary. I've spoken before on a Sunday morning about how we were fighting to campaign to keep the £20 a week uplift in universal credit that started at the beginning of the pandemic and has been a lifeline to many people in our community and probably to some of us here today. Our team worked really hard pouring a lot of energy into this campaign, but the cut still went ahead this week. And six million low-income households will now be £1,000 a year worse off. Thomasin, our advice worker, here she is uh, in one of our campaign videos, she told me about someone she's supporting this week who, uh, while the uplift was still in place, had £30 a month to live on for food and other essentials after his bills were paid. He'll now have minus £50 a month to make sure he can eat food. Thomasin and many of my other colleagues were having conversations about how angry and disappointed they rightly felt when they worked and campaigned so hard for what they knew was right, for what they knew was ensuring that people in our community could have the basics that they really need. But we, after some uh, ranting and slightly cross conversations, we got up the next day, we had our team meeting, we wrote to MPs, we had advice appointments, we met the leader of the council, and we got stuck in with the next campaign because we'll continue to fight to make sure everybody in our community has access to the basics they need. And we're not going to sit back and passively believe that maybe a promise of hope might be realized someday, somehow. We're going to fight to be part of that promise becoming a reality. The promise of hope can be painfully slow, but it prevails against the odds. Uh, when my parents and my grandparents fight against the climate crisis, they do so not for their own benefit, really, because it's probably not going to affect them much, 
but for the legacy that they will leave behind. They live now in the hope and faith that catastrophe can be avoided for my generation and the ones that come after. They're willing to sacrifice some of their comforts for the furthering of justice in the future, for the legacy. And in that situation too, the promise of hope can be painfully slow, but we choose to believe that hope prevails against the odds. And I think we're all called to play our part in ensuring that hope prevails, in ensuring that the promises of God are realized. Whatever it is we care about in the world, whatever injustice we see, whatever we hope for and long for, we live by faith through uncertainty. And the promise of God throughout history remains, to go back to what Nath said last week, to restore us to our original story, to goodness and to wholeness. And while we wait for that promise, we act and we hope. We're called to continue to fight to make those promises happen. We're called until the day we take our last breath to stand in the shadows of those who've gone before us, in the legacy of Abraham, in the legacy of Sarah, in the legacy of Sojourner. We stand in the promise of God who works with us. We stand in the promise that something better is on the horizon, even if we can't see it, even if the promise seems too outlandish to be true. God works with us as we seek a hope that prevails against the odds.